It's uh, great to be with you today. It really is. My rock star wife is back with me, so that's a good thing as well. She, uh, she made a recommendation in light of the fact that I'm uh, somewhat vertically challenged is uh, maybe I ought to stand on the stage and so that, what do you think? No? I'm okay? You can hear me all right. All right. Then I'll stay, honey. All right. <laughs> you know, there's a, an old story about a visiting dweller, city dweller, I should say, who was amazed uh, when the farmer gave a whistle and his dog herded in all of the cattle into a, a main pen and then did the latch with his paw. The city dweller looked at the old farmer there and says, man, that's quite a dog you have. What's his name? And the old farmer looked down for a moment and said, what do you call that pretty red flower that smells good and has thorns on the stem? The man said, rose? He says, that's it. Then he turned and looked at his wife and said, rose? What kind of dog? What do we call that dog? <laughs> you know, our propensity to forget explains why there's so much repetition in the Bible. You know, throughout the Scripture, God gives us all kinds of opportunities uh, just to be reminded of the basic truths that will enrich our lives. And we understand that and we know it. We need to hear it again and again and again in a little bit different ways. And it begins to take root in our own life. Uh, you know, the, uh, throughout the scripture, God gives us all kinds of opportunities to be reminded of basic stuff. And our use of money happens to be a prime example of this. Uh, you know, whenever a, a pastor addresses the subject of giving and money in a church, oftentimes there's a fair amount of hemorrhaging that takes place. Uh, there was a guy named Robert Whatnow, and he was a sociologist from Princeton University. And he took a survey and found that 86% of middle-class America felt that greed is sin. Uh, and uh, they also felt that uh, they weren't greedy. But 90% of those that were, you know, polled in this thing felt that they wanted a lot more money. So it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, that uh, the vast majority of people in the United States believe that greed is wrong that they're not greedy, but they just like to have a lot more money. And a, a bit of a head-scratcher there. So there's a, a tension that we all face. Uh, we are material as well as spiritual beings, and we're called to live spiritually in a material world, and finding equilibrium sometimes is pretty difficult. Now, the Bible gives us some sure-footed guidance, if you please. And let me offer three principles. They're very simple. They're in your bulletin outline. 
on money as it relates to you and to me. Just three thoughts that come out of scriptures. I didn't design these things. I didn't make them up. It just happens to be what the Bible says. And the first thing is, is that having money is dignity. Now, money answers something very deep in our human nature. Uh, We were designed to have dominion over creation and uh, to take care of the world. And without at least some measure of dominion, uh, you know, there's no dignity in life. And so dominion is related to stewardship, and stewardship is related to money. And when sin entered into the world, money which should be our dignity, has become now our definition. Not not wholeheartedly or not necessarily with everybody, but with a majority of people. And when money becomes our definition, then we use it to measure our self-worth. And when we use money to measure our self-worth, it becomes a destructive power in our life. Now, one of the ways to liberate ourselves from the love of money is is simply to remember that everything that we have under one mortgage really belongs to God himself. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Job 41 says, "The the Lord says that everything under heaven is mine. So the homes that we have, the material goods that we've accumulated, uh, all belong to the Lord. And he's the one that gave us the intellect, the ingenuity, the entrepreneurial skills uh, to have what we have. He's the one that gave us all of that, and that belongs to him as well for for his glory. Uh, He ordained, not only that, he ordained that we should live in a country where the average paper boy makes more than 70% of the laborers on this globe. Uh, that's what God has done. He has blessed us immeasurably. Uh, it's all God's gift, and we are trustees. And trusteeship feels right because God designed you and me for that, that particular task and that goal. And that's why communism, that's why extreme socialism doesn't work very well. Ultimately, it crumbles beneath uh, the own, its own weight type stuff. And that's why prison is so awful. You know, the most dehumanizing aspect of incarceration is that there's a forfeiture of trusteeship. We have no dominion. We can care for nothing in this part, and you know, no, no part of the world when we happen to be in prison. And that's why stealing is wrong. Uh, you know, when somebody steals from another individual, it just touches a nerve at the very core of your being. It's not simply the loss of your stuff. It's the fact that you feel violated because your stewardship rights have been assaulted. You see, ownership is good. It's the way in which we exercise dominion. But we need to recognize that we only own things in a secondary sense. Let me give you a second thought. 
Uh, giving money is delightful. Some of you say, well, prove it to me. Uh, it's delightful because you develop as a person. And that's a very, very good thing. Uh, Luke chapter 12 says, you know, verse 13, we read it. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, whenever I read a verse like that, I'm reminded that wherever there's a will, there's always going to be a relative, <laughs> you know, and, and disputes over inheritance are often just simply about greed. And greed is the myopia of the soul that keeps us from seeing past ourselves. It's just terminal selfishness is what it is. You know, in the first century, there were no secular courts, so to speak. And so civil suits were always taken to the rabbis. And they would be the ones that would adjudicate the case by applying biblical law. Now, Jesus was not an accredited rabbi, but he was a teacher of the law, and he spoke a great deal about money and possessions. And so he was asked to arbitrate in this family dispute, so to speak. Now, Jesus was in the midst of the lecture uh, that really had nothing to do with money, and when this man interrupts him with this request that sinners on Monday, on money. And so what Jesus does is he pauses in his lecture and he addresses this man. And he gives a warning about how greed can shrivel a life. But generous giving, on the other hand, is the core of Christian character. Now, underneath this point, I've listed, you know, the three cardinal virtues of Christianity. And I just want to briefly mention each one for just a moment with a comment. But how about, you know, it's faith, hope, and love. Let's look at faith for just a moment. Uh, faith is a reflection of the object of our trust. You know, if you trust the Lord, then you're usually generous toward that which matters to the Lord. Now, if you don't trust the Lord, then you're usually not so generous to those things that matter to the Lord. Now, there are thousands of exceptions here, by the way, uh, and I, I certainly want to pause for just a moment and acknowledge it because there are all kinds of foundations that are not founded on Christianity that are doing tremendous work in the world in which we live. And I saw a special on the Bill and uh, Melinda Gates Foundation not too long ago with Suzanne and they're doing a phenomenal job of raising the, the standard of living in various parts of the world, and billions of dollars are flowing into that, mostly by Bill Gates, but also by friends like Warren Buffett and so forth. I have no idea of their spiritual condition, but they're magnificently benevolent, and I thank God for what they're doing just for humanity in the world. So it's important that we recognize those that may not be in our spiritual camp, but they're doing an incredible work that is benefiting people on this earth whom Christ loves. How about hope? Uh, that in which we place our hope is a reflection of that which gives us a sense of value and a sense of worth. You see, if the springs 
that feed our hope is the neighborhood in which we live or the car in which we drive or the clothes that we wear, then those are the things that we're going to value the most and our dollars are going to be siphoned off accordingly. How about love? The focus of our love is reflected in where we place our affection. If we spend large amounts on ourselves and lack sensitivity to those who are less fortunate, then our love quotient probably needs to be adjusted somewhat. You see, giving is a reality check really on every virtue in the Christian life. Uh, money is quantifiable and it visibly demonstrates our character. Giving, on the other hand, also demonstrates our dependency upon the Lord, and our compassion for one another, our fellow human beings. It's important. And that's why giving can't be treated as an isolated subject. And that's why it's mentioned in so many different ways, in so many different contexts in the Bible itself. It just cuts through every subject, and it measures the reality of our love. It does. Now, the third major principle is hoarding money is detrimental. Uh, let me read a few verses that we read a few minutes ago, just as a reminder uh, from Luke 12. It says, but Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? The word that translated arbitrator, by the way, simply means divider, and Jesus divides. And then he continues, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. All of these things just talk about what we're involved in here. And the reason that Christ, the reason that Christ divides people is because the claims he made, he makes, can't be treated casually. You see, intellectual honesty demands that you and I either embrace the love Christ has or reject the love that Christ has, and end up hating him. You know, Christ can't be relegated to a place of a moral teacher or a good example. He's either your Lord or your adversary. There's no middle ground. That's laid out by God himself. Now, in verse 14, when Jesus was asked to divide a family inheritance, he says he wasn't appointed for that kind of division. He says, you know what? I've come to bring people to God, not property to people. I'm here to get you the things that you, I'm not here to get you the things that you need to make your life better. I'm here to be your life, is what he's saying. If you put anything before me, family, career, then you're living on a bubble. Now, the biblical principle is found in Luke Chapter 12 again, it says, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, 
or not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, possessions aren't, ma- aren't a bad thing, but the selfish pursuit of just simply possessions is pointless. It's because they trade on the twin illusions of power and fulfillment, but they deliver neither one. You know, the greedy eventually lose power over themselves, and they become misers. It's kind of a diabolical reversal of the created order. People made in the image of God, instead of having dominion over the things that God designed, they end up being enslaved by those things. Kind of the Silas Marner thing, misery, that George Eliot writes about in her novel, Uh, you know, is... We become like the man, you know, in the muck, you know, we become like the man in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We were raking the muck. We're down in the middle of, of all of that stuff, and we can't even see the crown that's upon our head that God has placed there as his people. You see, when possessions are the goal, people become pawns. And when we love things, we use people When we love people, we use things. There's a man named Leon Fastinger. He was a researcher at Stanford University, and he did a lot of work on social comparison theory. And there's a lot of identity about this here. But he says, you know, we tend to compare ourselves with people above us on any given ladder, or people below us on any given ladder. So just imagine people on a ladder, and you're somewhere in the middle of that ladder. And when it comes to morality, we tend to compare ourselves to the people that are lower than we are. You know, those people that are mass murderers or drug dealers or child molesters, you know, we're doing pretty well compared to them. But when it comes to money and possessions, guess what part of the ladder we compare ourselves to? It's those who are above us. In other words, we never quite have what we want. We keep on going for a little bit more. Uh, Let me read again. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Then I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? You know, as this man contemplates his future in this particular parable, uh, you know, among the rich and the famous, he really doesn't realize that he's about to join the dead and departed. 
You see, a fool is not one without mental acumen. There's a lot of people that are very foolish, that are incredibly smart, intellectually bright. A fool is one who denies the existence of God and the reality of eternal life. Now, the man in this story simply built bigger barns and saved as if this life is all there is. The Bible, however, reminds us that there's life before death and there's life after death. Now, if there's life before death, then it's short-sighted not to save anything. If there's life after death, then it's short-sighted to save everything. And the man in the parable lived as if life were simply one-dimensional. But because his life has a spiritual as well as a physical dimension, we only put some of our treasure in the barns. We also put treasure in that which is permanent. And that which is permanent is in the work of the Lord and the people of the Lord. You know, I have a book in my library called Early Christian Writings. I bought it when I was going to seminary a long, long time ago. And it just, uh, you know, the church fathers followed the apostles, and uh, they wrote a number of things along the way for a number of centuries. But this was a first century deal. And there was a, <clears throat> a letter written by a gentleman to a guy named Diognetus. Uh, and uh, how would you like that name, Diognetus? Anyway, uh, he was curious about the nature of the Christian faith. And in this wonderful letter to him, uh, there's a statement that stands out that's just proven the test of time. And here's the statement that is written to this fellow who's inquiring about Christianity. And he said, Christians share their table with all, and their marriage bed with none. In other words, money is promiscuous, whereas sex is sacred. Now, our culture today has kind of reversed the two of them. You know, uh, sex is promiscuous. You know, we don't have any problem, it seems like, uh, in moving around and hooking up with one another without being married or anything like that. But money is sacred, and it's the path of ease and enjoyment. And so we end up selfishly guarding money, but are more promiscuous when it comes to the significance of sex. You know, uh, followers of Christ have to be countercultural and restore the sacredness of sex and selfishly guard the marriage bed but be very promiscuous and freely generous when it comes to our money. And that financial outlook simply rests on the reality of eternal life in the future and the protective care of your heavenly Father here in the present. Now, let me conclude with the story here. It may be true. It may not be true. I'll leave it to you to decide after you hear the story. But there was a man in New York City who had a wife that had a cat. Actually, the cat had her. Uh, she loved the cat, stroked the cat, combed the cat's fur, fed it, pampered the cat. The man, her husband on the other hand, hated that cat, detested that cat. He was allergic to cat fur. 
Uh, he hated the smell of the litter box. He, he couldn't stand the scratching on the furniture. He uh, couldn't get a good night's sleep because the cat was jumping up on the bed and then would jump off the bed and then later would jump on the bed again. And so one day his wife was gone for the weekend. And so he took the cat and he put it in a gunny sack. And he put some bricks in it, and he tossed it into the Hudson River there off the island. And the wife came back, and when her cat was missing, she, she couldn't be consoled. She missed that cat incredibly. And her husband goes up to her and says, you know, honey, I, I know that cat may, meant just about everything to you. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put an ad in the New York Times and offer a $1,000 reward to anybody that finds and returns that cat. You know, and about a week passes or so, nothing's happened, and the husband comes back to the wife and says, you know, I know that that cat really mattered to you, and you rejoiced in that cat, and because you rejoiced in it, I rejoiced in that cat too. I'm going to actually put another ad in the New York Times, and I'm going to up the ante to $2,000. Now, a friend of the man read that in the New York Times, and he called the guy up, and he says, you got to be nuts. There's not a cat on the face of this earth that is worth $2,000. And the guy looked back and says, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. <laughs> anyway, here's the lesson. You know, if we have any inkling of the infinite wealth and the protective care of our Heavenly Father and what it means to be in God's family, then we can afford to be generous because it cures myopic thinking and opens our eyes to the world. It stretches our soul, and it makes us great. Let me conclude just with a couple of thoughts. Uh, first of all, if you happen to have walked in here today and you're out of work, don't have a job, finances are extremely narrow and so forth, and it's, you know, you would like to give, but, you know, right now things are, are really, really difficult. Uh, here's what I would say uh, to you. Uh, go ahead and come to church, by all means. But let those of us who have some kind of an income pay the freight for a while, and we'll carry you along. Uh, you know, the collective worship of our assembly is just open to all, and it's okay. Uh, the second thought is this. Oh, one of the things that uh, Suzanne and I have both observed uh, during our couple of years here at Harvest is... Uh, simply that uh, you don't need to be instructed to give. I mean, that is simply part of your DNA. It's just been grafted into that. And uh, this is an unbelievably strategic time in the life of Harvest. 
And, um, you know, we're both uh, extremely excited, uh, both at the eventual coming of a senior pastor that's just the perfect fit for this place. And excited, extremely excited about the prospects of how uh, the footprint of harvest is going to be enlarged when we move over to the new facility and, and what we're going to do for it and what it's going to be like and how it's going to make uh, a lot of the ministry easier and more enticing. And all of a sudden, great, great things will happen. One of the th characteristics about giving to a project like that, this is that it's not equal giving at all. Uh, some have more resources than, than other people. And if you choose to give just a little bit, because right now that's the time, you know, that's, that's a good thing. God takes money. It's his, it's his church anyway. And he'll multiply whatever. Let those of us who have jobs, you know, pay the freight for a while. You know, I'm a we're just excited about what the future actually holds. And uh, if we all participate, even just a little bit, we all get to enjoy the blessing. You know, and uh, really that's, I, I've done this one other time with the church. You know, we had a building program and had to move into this thing. And it looked ominous, it looked overwhelming. You know, but, uh, you know, large gifts, small gifts just came in, and, and God is the one who decides when and how it's going to happen. And that's why we can take great comfort in it. So anyway, as, as we move on, we, we see the, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ being lived out in the greatest gift of all of the Son of God. And it was that particular gift that rescued us from absolute, you know, eternity in hell. He, he came and gives us heaven. And with that kind of gift, he just asks us to say, hey, listen, can you be generous in all aspects of your life as well? Can you be there for your friends? Can you be there for relatives that might need a little bit of help once in a while? And if, if you've, can you be there? Can you sacrifice a little bit? To, to bring about a reality that everybody's excited about. So that's my thought for today, okay? And I'm going to have you rise, and I'll close in prayer. And then I'm going to have you seated again, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we uh, give you thanks. Uh, you are thoroughly adequate for all of our needs and Father, I pray that you'll make us uh, men and women and young people and even children uh, have big hearts and trust you for what you're going to do. And we thank you in advance for what is truly going to happen. And we pray, Father, that uh, this will be something that unites harvest, uh, where our love for one another will increase uh, the friendship quotient will grow, and uh, Father, we will collectively rejoice in what you're going to do. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.